Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Ben Williams and Rendell Robbins from Highway Vodka coming up in a little bit. But first, I am joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. We follow him on Instagram at Fulmer, H-O-U. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, James Harden is getting into the restaurant business. The one-time NBA MVP is opening a restaurant called 13 in the former Mr. People's Space in Midtown. Now, I admit we don't know very much about this. They haven't said who the chef is going to be or what kind of food it's going to serve. Um, they haven't actually even officially confirmed the location, but if you sort of sleuth out uh, city records, you can you can figure that part out. Yeah, they, they have an Instagram page now, too, so it's listed there. They did a, a job fair. They're doing a job fair in Midtown, so they listed it there. Um, I guess, I don't know, I've got it somewhere, 13. Uh, yeah. I guess Tor- Tor- Tobias... Tobias Dorzen is going to be the, I, I don't know if he's going to be the chef so much as I've heard that he's going to curate it. So I don't know if he's moving here from DC and going to run it, or he's just going to get it set up and running. I'm not sure. Yeah. I had, I had someone else tag me in an Instagram story. And I, honestly, I don't remember if it was a man or a woman, but that, but that that person was going to be one of the chefs in the kitchen. And they said, don't worry. Eric, you're going to like the food. So, you know, Hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to being, I'm, I'm open to the idea. You know, I just, uh, like, what is your, you know, what are your expectations? I mean, you know, what kind of, what would you sort of expect from James Harden's restaurant? Well, I I don't really, I don't know. I mean, if he's the owner and maybe he's funding it, uh, I'm more interested in what the the chef, you know, what Tobias is going to do. You know, looking at his Instagram, he's got a lot of really cream heavy, you know, dishes, very, you know, uh, but it could be like strong comfort food. You know, we'll see. I mean, it's obviously a daunting task to start a restaurant from scratch. You know, you're bringing a chef in from out of town, um, you know, uh, in a space that is on a one way street from a previously failed restaurant that was, you know, admittedly, it was really a train wreck, Mr. People's. Um, you know, those are kind of the negatives. Um, some of the positives are, you know, it's in Midtown, it's close to downtown. Uh, so it has access to a lot of, uh, young people with disposable income. You know, it's easily, you you can get to it fairly easily, you know, from different highway systems. Well, and and the the owner makes $40 million a year. Yeah. I mean, like, I think on their, like from a financial perspective, they should be in pretty good shape. Yeah. It should, it shouldn't be a problem with uh, underfunding or capital outlay. You know, I don't think they're going to run out of spoons or anything. Um, You know, and like on the, the job fair site, it does like one of the job, you know, it says hostesses, chefs, you know, waitresses, uh, waiters uh, and uh, you know, security. And I was like, at first I like security. I was like, but you know, you would need that. I mean, that that's one of the, you know, the, the double-edged sword of celebrities that you got to have security. And, and if it's a, if it's a celebrity owned restaurant, then you know, that becomes an issue. So, well, and the other thing about that, that space is kind of interesting because they, they Mr. People's operated 
you know, the first floor was kind of dining and bar. They had some private dining on the second floor, but then there's a basement. That building has a basement. And the long-term plan had been to open a nightclub in the basement, but obviously it never came to fruition. And so I wonder if one of the reasons for the security is that, you know, they might, they might be planning to utilize that basement uh, that's that that's good insight because when I when I toured Mr. Peoples when they were building it out, also the top floor was going to be built into a bar, you know, like these, you know, this sort of bar with a view thing that that never happened either. Um, so I mean, because it's a long, you know, it's a sort of long and slender space, you know, it's a pretty it's a big enough building to hold a lot of a lot of stuff. So yeah, it, a lot of different things could happen with that. Yeah, and I think. You know, James Harden, obviously known for his fashion sense and his sense of style. So I, you know, I hope that the, like, whatever it looks like, it should be really eye-catching. Yeah, I mean, I wish them well. I mean, I know that there's a certain, when chefs come in from out of town, there's that sense of like, oh, it's the culinary interloper. But you know what? Welcome, Tobias. You know, you know, I we wish you well. And um I hope they I hope they start off on the right foot and things get going for them, you know. Absolutely. All right. Let us move on to topic number two. A new tasty menu restaurant is coming to the gallery area. Hidden Omakase will seat 14 people at a space. It uh, well, actually, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's located where the culture map office is, 5353 <laughs> West Alabama. Not that I've been working from the office. Uh, you know, what with COVID, but this, this might be, this and Burger Chan might be what gets me back into the office on a, on a semi-regular basis. So he's uh, the chef's from uh, of the Izakaya that was on Shepherd. Is that correct? Right. Blackbird Izakaya. Yes. Right. right. Which I shockingly never made it to. Well, I actually really enjoyed it. I, I actually, I thought Billy, the chef is Billy Ken. Right. And I actually thought he did really good work at Blackbird Izakaya. It's a place I enjoyed quite a bit. So I am curious to see what he does with this. And apparently you could get an omakase at Blackbird, but it was kind of a hassle because you still had to, you know, serve ramen and skewers and everything to regular diners. And now, of course, he doesn't have to do that. Yeah, it's it just from looking at the Facebook page from it, it sounds like he's doing exactly what he wants to do, which is interact with the guests, you know, over a carefully curated, curated, you know, meal, um, you know, so that there's a social aspect for it as well as, you know, it, it, it goes right to the heart of what he wants to make. So, and I think I saw a price listed at like $150. Obviously that's not like, you know, you know, Oh, well, let's, let's do that now. You know, it's not a impulse buy, but you know, for a high end omakase, that's very reasonably priced. And, I think it said something about BYOB that, you, you know, they don't have a liquor license. And so initially you could bring your own sake or alcohol or whatever your choice in alcohol is in. Yeah. There's an elementary school very close by. So they have to working through the liquor license is a, a little bit of a hassle, but they'll, it's they'll, the heart they'll, of the Galleria though. There's lots of liquor license around there. You know, that's right. There's even, even some interesting clubs nearby. I think, you know, well, yeah, I mean, that building used to be the Roxy, right? So, you know, it's uh, there's certainly a history of, of dining and entertainment in that building. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm excited about this. I, it, you know, and it, Hidden Omakase should open uh, before the end of the year. So, but, you know, there's just not, I mean, 
there are obviously omakase experiences at Japanese restaurants in Houston, but there isn't a restaurant like specifically devoted to it. So, you know, I think it'll be an interesting experience. And and the idea of, you know, it's only 14 seats, you're, you're sitting around a counter, uh, you know, so it won't be very crowded. I think that that has some real appeal to me, especially right now. Most definitely. All right. And then let's do topic number three. Morningstar has reached its end. The cafe donut shop will close on December 28th. Um, Former, I have to tell you, this one stings a little bit for me. I mean, I've known uh, David Buer, one of the owners, for a long time. And I, I know that, you know, making donuts was something that was very important to him. It's what he, it's kind of how he got his start in the, in the restaurant business and that they partnered with this legendary uh, University of Houston architecture professor on the design. You know, it was kind of all of the things that David likes in the world, like rolled up into one cafe and, uh, you know, that just the reality is that they just couldn't uh, financially, it just didn't make sense to keep it going. So, uh, so it's going to go away and, and uh, I'm a little bit sad about it. Yeah, me too. Even I'll be honest, I didn't, really go very often it's not in my neighborhood and so i didn't travel for that but um you know david's a friend of mine also and i respect him highly uh and i know he'll he'll have another project i'm sure he has something already you know working or something at least in his mind but you know whenever a a neighborhood place with you know with character and identity and quality you know goes under it's it's never good for this, you know, for any city, particularly our city. Yeah. And, and there is just something about, you know, this, this moment, the pandemic that's been really tough on these kind of, you know, breakfast and lunch kind of neighborhood cafes, right? Because people, you know, are working from home, you know, and they don't want to gather places. And, you know, I mean, these coffee shops aren't, you know, they don't have a drive through. They're not, they're not designed necessarily to be make coffee and get it out to people as fast as possible. They're designed to be kind of gathering points and community spaces. And, and when you don't, you know, when you don't have that, it's, it kind of, you know, it, it ruins the the whole plan. Yeah. And your, your profit margin is not, you know, you're not, you don't have alcohol to rely on or other things like that. And uh, so you, you do have to have a, a flow of people on a, on a regular basis to, to pay the bills and to, you know, to end up in the black. And, uh, you know, obviously that's not happening. And, I, you know, I don't this is pure speculation on my part, but, you know, a lot of people now, of course, are staying in and cooking. And even if you're not an avid cook or, you know, even a good one, I mean, so everyone can make everyone can make breakfast, everyone can make eggs, that kind of thing. So it's it's one of those things like, well. Maybe I'll get lunch to go, but, you know, everyone's having breakfast at home. Um, like I said, that's pure speculation on my part. But uh, I think well, no, no, I, I, I think that that's right. You know, if, if you're not driving to the office in the morning, then you don't necessarily need to stop for that cup of coffee or those donuts. Right. So I think I think that really hurt them. You know, all their catering business, you know, went away just like everybody else. And, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, we still have a couple of weeks to go to Morningstar and get, you know, get a donut or a shaking beef salad or whatever. And, uh, you know, I'll certainly go there at least one more time before it's all, before it's all over. Absolutely. All right. That does it for, uh, the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. 
So, Michael, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk to you about the new Mazrafs. They have relocated from Post Oak Boulevard to the Memorial Area at Bunker Hill and I-10. You and I were the guests of Russell Mazraf for uh, a dinner recently. He kind of tasted us through some of the menu. Let me put it to you. What did you think of what they're doing over there? I like the move. I like the space, uh, you know, right off I-10, Spring Branch. And, you know, the area north, you know, of I-10 Spring Branch is really, really expanding and blowing up. Um, I like that it's a you know, smaller dining room than what they had before. It wasn't this big cavernous thing. Uh, you know, having that raw bar right when you come in. Uh, an outdoor eating area that, you know, it, they can easily, you know, use that word pivot and open when the weather's good. Uh, you know, they, they're starting to, tw- they've tweaked the menu now and kind of bring it into the 21st century. And that's great. Uh, I think it's really exciting what they're doing there. It's a beautiful space. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think, you know, that, that is the thing about the post location was it was really large and yeah, it could be even a little bit difficult to navigate or, or just felt maybe kind of dated. Um, the new space is, is very open, you know, it feels very stylish and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm with you. I think they're, you know, they're doing some really good stuff in terms of the menu. I mean, we had a couple of dishes I really liked. I mean, we had that Wagyu uh, meatball with the, uh, with the polenta, you know. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, they've always been known for their foie gras and, uh, and certainly, and we had it, we had it both as like the, the foie appetizer. And then they're also doing duck rossini. So on top of uh, roasted duck breast with uh, smoked potato rounds and uh, maybe the biggest piece of Chilean sea bass I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was prodigious and their desserts are always really solid. Uh, It's a very, you know, it's a very stylish place. It's the kind of place I, you know, you could go for a business meal and you can go on a date. Uh, You could just go for a nice meal. I mean, their, their wine program has always, Russell takes a lot of pride in that. It's always been really strong. Uh, and the other thing that I think is a real benchmark of Mazras is their service. Uh, you know, something that doesn't necessarily jump out on the page, but they've always had, you know, real quality professional servers there. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's always very, very polished, uh, but warm, you know, and uh, that, that certainly has, they've kept most of their staff and that's uh, that's a really good sign. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, right? They, they obviously know the menu and there's a lot of like little touches, you know, things presented table side or, or you know, a thorough knowledge of the menu. You know, they can explain all the different components and, and how the dishes are, are assembled. Um, you know, this is not an inexpensive restaurant uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think uh, from that perspective, it delivers a good value. Yeah, it's like I said, it's very seamless service. So it's like they're there when you need them, uh, but they're not obtrusive. Uh, it's yeah, it was a quality experience all the way around. Yeah, uh, did you have uh, any other favorite dishes? I mean, or uh, I mean, we did we did the short rib, you know, super classic. Yeah, the duck there is just they're sourcing the duck from D'Artagnan. You know, it's just you know, so it's it's really good quality. And it was, you know, executed extremely well, you know, uh, fantastic. Like when you, like if you drop your hat and you say, Hey, where do I want to go for a, to have duck for dinner? 
and let's say outside of a maybe an Asian experience, you know, uh, for me, just me, Mazras would probably come up like right at the top of the list for that. Uh, and so that was quite memorable. Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. I mean, that was that was maybe the standout dish, and and as silly as it sounds, I mean, that meatball was delicious. I, you know, like I've said to you before, I don't, I'm not a big fan of all beef meatballs because they tend to either come out a little bit dry or just a little one note. I like a little veal and pork blended in with it. I like the the fattiness that you get from that, the texture as well as the flavor. And but this was an all beef meatball, but it was wagyu, so that. You know, the marbling of that and the fat, the flavor, I would, I mean, I, if I went back there, I, can, I can't imagine not getting it. That's how good it was. Right. No, absolutely. And then let us uh, turn our attention to Ostia, the Italian restaurant in Montrose. You and I went there for brunch a couple weeks ago. I had a pizza. You had spaghetti carbonara, bucatini carbonara. Yeah. And uh, we split a Caesar salad in that. Duck liver mousse. I mean, you you take your carbonara much more seriously than I do. So let me just put it to you straight up. I mean, did it hold up compared to, well, I guess the, the definitive version is probably a Giacomo's. Yeah. For a restaurant, the definitive version is Giacomo's. Um, Dolce Vita had a good one back in the day that they did with a rigatoni, but I could always get them to switch over to a spaghetti or a bucatini for me. You know, and I understand why restaurants don't do it on a regular. It's a pain in the ass to make. It's a pain in the ass to make well, which is why you see so many versions that are, well, this is my interpretation, adding cream or doing this or that, doing that, because it's, you know, it's extremely labor intensive, pain in the ass dish when most, a lot of pasta dishes are significantly easier for restaurants to do. And man, the, the bucatini was cooked perfectly. Uh, the quality of it, you know, you could tell that they made the pasta there or that it had been freshly made. Um, it looked like they blended some, you know, Parmesan. So it wasn't a sharp pecker pecorino that I like, but that's okay. I mean, it was, the, the dish was well-made, uh, and there was enough guanciale that, you know, you, you got that and you got some of the fat from that, that you want that you blend with the cheese. So I would totally go back there again. And I would certainly drag, uh, our boy JC Reed there, who, uh, started me off on this path so many years ago when he wrote that four part piece on, yeah, carbonara. five thousand word. You're right. Five thousand word carbonara exploration. <laughs> yes. So yeah, yeah, and I make you know I make carbonara several times a year. Uh, it's just, it's just you know it's it's horribly it's horrible for you in terms of diet you know, and it's a pain in the ass to make, but it's oh so worth it when you get you know when you do it. So it's really exciting and refreshing to see a restaurant do it and do it well. Right, and and I I mean I had a pizza, you know I think th- I think they're really onto something that they've got that wood fired oven get that nice char on the crust, you know, good quality toppings. And, uh, and, and I really think that Caesar salad is maybe one of the best in the city right now. It was solid. that right. Yeah. It's, you know, big pieces of lettuce and that right. Uh, that right. Like anchovy punch to it. Yeah. It had the, the twinge of the anchovy, but they didn't go over the top with it. Um, you know, the quality of the romaine was good. Uh, yeah. I would, I would totally have that again. Well, I, I guess I critique the thing that's just a personal one for me is if I'm having coffee or I'm having iced tea, uh, I'd like to have a sweetener with it. One, you know, it's a pet peeve of mine on service when people ask me for that. They should just bring it. But more germane to what we're talking about is they only have, you know, uh, turbinado sugar. And I'm like, 
okay, obviously that was a conscious choice that we're not going to allow artificial sweeteners or anything else in here. And you know what? I'm like, that's a pain in the ass. All right. Uh, I just, that's a pet peeve of mine also. It's like, look, you know what? Get some Splendor, get some Stevia or get some Sweet and Low, whatever. Let me have my iced tea. <laughs> Rant yeah, over. No. Right, right. I mean, we, you know, this could be one of those things where, you know, Travis McShane, the chef or whoever's helping to put that together, you know, I mean, Travis is from Houston, but he spent a lot of time in New York. He may have forgotten like how much iced tea we drink here and you need, you need more than one sweetener choice. Yeah, exactly. You gotta give, give people the pink or blue cancer of their, their preference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like I said, if you don't want to do that, then get the monkey fruit in the raw or the stevia, whatever, just give me some options other than turbinado, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> little, little, uh, like a little squirt jar of simple syrup even. You know, yeah. I don't can... want to make a, a big deal out of it, but it, you know, you'll never, you'll lose, you're going to lose a lot of iced tea service because of that. You know, I mean, I ordered it and sent it back. I'm like, no. Right. Right. It, we, we should say this is the pet peeve of yours. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy that I can provide you with this platform to, <laughs> to share your thoughts on artificial sweeteners with Houston. You know, I have a sense of validation right now and I, I can go to my grave smiling, knowing that, this, this got out. So thank well, you. Well, I mean, it is your birthday this week. So consider <laughs> that my, my present to you. Right on. All right, Michael, that does it for our restaurants of the week. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Good. Always good talking to you. All right. And I will be right back with Ben Williams and Wendell Robbins. I am joined this week by Ben Williams, one of the founders and owners of Highway Vodka. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, man. Thanks for having me. Greatly appreciate the opportunity. Everything is going well. Yeah, thanks for doing this. We're, we're kind of efforting your uh, business partner, Wendell Robbins, so we'll, we'll keep our, our fingers crossed that he's able to log in too, and I'll, <laughs> if, he, uh, if he pops on, I'll introduce him. No problem. But uh, yeah, I guess, tell me just a little bit about your background, because I know that you are the brother of Chris Williams, the chef of Lucille's. Yep. So how did you kind of, like, what were you doing, like when Lucille's opened and then how did you kind of get into the spirits business? So um, we opened Lucille's. 2012. Yeah. When we got the. uh, well, we got the lease in like 11 or 10 and then fought with everything, <laughs> you know, just to get open. And then uh, so we did that. And then basically, but distilling was always just like a hobby, you know, just messing around on the side. Cause I've been doing it for about eight years. And uh, so just kind of messing around with it on the side and, uh, you know, being in the restaurant business, you get to meet, you know, a bunch of people, you know, all these, um, you know, all the, the, the reps and stuff like that coming through and you kind of see what they're doing. So it was always fun to, you know, picking their brain, like how does this stuff work, you know, and all that. I mean, I know what they come and expect of us as, you know, bar restaurant owners, but, you know, just from their side. And so uh, we start messing around, making stuff, uh, me and my partner. And um, next thing you know, man, stuff started tasting pretty good, you know, and uh, there were a lot of bad batches though. Trust me, a lot of them. <laughs> 
So basically you were making moonshine. I mean, well, no, because like, you know, I was always trying to make like vodka or whiskeys because I had a, we started off with a, a 13 gallon, um, you know, six plate reflux column still. So like the proof levels were always getting up to the 190, you know, 180s and 190s and stuff like that. So it wasn't like we were making stuff that was coming off the still at like, you know, 130, 140, something like that. Right. Um, so it was all, but yeah, basically you could say, because it was, it was especially the setup because we were in, uh, my partner, he has a, he was really into horses and stuff. So he had this big barn where all his horses were, and so that's where we set up the still. It was in the barn right next to all this hay and stuff like that. And we would just be sitting in there, you know, doing runs. So, yeah, it had a real, like, moonshiny vibe to it. <laughs> At least. The, uh, Wendell, I see that you have logged into the Zoom. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. I had to come outside of the facility. We don't have good reception inside. Got it. Yeah. Ben was just kind of explaining how you guys got your start. Yes. When did you sort of develop your interest in in distilling and, and how did you kind of become fascinated by that? So um, I hope my parents aren't listening. I've been a drinker for a very long time uh, since the teens. And <laughs> vodka and I <laughs> vodka and I have never gotten along. Oh. So <laughs> I wanted to try to find a, uh, a vodka that I could drink that didn't give me the uh, morning after feeling that so many people associate with clear liquor. Um, and so um, in our studies, Ben and I found that if we use hemp, the products and the uh, product that we get out of our hemp vodka doesn't give you that hangover and that terrible morning after feeling that so many people associate with clear liquor. Uh, a lot of our tastings, we get that comment, oh, I don't drink clear, I drink brown because folks are avoiding that hangover. And so I think that that's important to understand. That's that's what we get out of the uh, that's one of the things that we get out of the hymn. Well, yeah, let me yeah, let me just sort of circle back on that a little bit, because highway vodka is hemp infused vodka. No, 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 it's not infused. Oh, good. It's yeah, correct me. Vodka. Yeah. So it starts from the, the mash ton. Like our grain, you know, bill is only hemp, corn and water. So you go from there. So, yeah, it's not. I just that that just that infused is just kind of connotates like it's some kind of little additive like with the dropper that you just you know add to something or whatever. But no, because it's it's really about what it does for the whole process of making you know the spirit from start to finish. Actually, well, good. So so I guess get into a little more detail then. Like, what is the benefit of making vodka with hemp in yeah. addition to weed? I guess. Right, right, right. So basically. Um, you start with the hemp corn and water, right? You know, in a huge pot, cook it up. And then the benefits from the hemp actually start right when it gets into the fermenters. And so from there, you'll start to see the, the oil start to form from the fermenter. I mean, from the fermentation process, the oils coming out of the hemp. And uh, just from reading and stuff, when we first messed with hemp, like the first time, the first thing we noticed was that our yields got larger, right? Because, uh, and then come, you know, with reading and whatever, you find out that hemp actually has these amino acids that kind of act as a superfood for yeast. So it was like a yeast nutrient. So the yeast was kind of like eating longer and, you know, stronger and stuff like that. So giving us more alcohol. So that's where, that's benefit one, right? Right there at that process. And then the oils forming. So then you go from the fermentation stage back to the still, 
And then just, we used to do it when we, were, when we first started messing with it, we would rack off the liquid in between the oil and the grain at the bottom, but that's like a messy process and stuff. So one day just out of being lazy, we just threw everything in the still, the oil, the grain, and you know, obviously the liquid. And man, that changed everything. That was like the best run we had ever did. And so over the years, just playing with it, we kind of realized that like that oil that, that we introduced into the still that was developed, you know, during the fermentation period, it's doing like two different things. It's one is kind of acting as like a layer of filtration, like that floats on top of the water, you know, the liquid in the still. So it's kind of doing some filtering right there. And then also changing the viscosity of the end, the end of the, um, the spirit that comes out on the other side. So it, it helps knock off that burn and it helps let some of the flavors from the, the corn and the sweetness from the corn kind of come through a little bit, holding those flavors on your palate. Something that we learned from my brother talking about the value of oil and what it does and cooking and stuff like that. So it really does. And so, yeah, so that's basically like all the different things that it's doing throughout the process that makes a huge difference in, uh, in anything else that we had ever tried to make. And, you know, we just stuck with it. Yeah. So how did you kind of go from hobbyist distiller to building a business? Um, just taking it around town and letting folks taste it. And after a while, the comments we were getting were, um, gosh, you guys could sell this. Are you selling it? Where can I buy it? How much is it? And uh, then we backed into, well, we need to file for a, li a license and a permit and start selling this stuff, Ben. And of course, Ben's all about trying to sell something. So <laughs> that was not a hard sell. <laughs> I mean, when you're, when you're taking this around to people or, or introducing it to them, I mean, is it hard to get them to try a new vodka? Because I, there's so many, right? I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of vodkas on the market already. Uh, I mean, like, you mean at this point, now that it's actually out, or you mean before? No, I, I kind of mean in the beginning. You know, now you. Nah, it wasn't hard at all because, you know, it was really family and friends, you know, and just like, and regulars at the restaurant or whatever and stuff like that, just kind of messing around. And, you know, everybody wants to taste something homemade. Like, wait, you made this? That's odd. Now, most people don't really get the opportunity to taste you know, something, the spirit anyway, that somebody just made yesterday or whatever, you know what I mean? So like, it wasn't hard at all to get, and the, the funny part about it, the weird part about it was that people always wanted to try it neat, which I thought was weird and room temperature. That sounds and terrible. Like, you know, yeah, nobody, <laughs> nobody drinks it like that, you know, but that's how everybody wanted to taste it. But that was actually the best thing because it helped us dial it in to where like when, when, like when women would want to try it and stuff, and when they would try it neat and room temperature and their face didn't like curl up and we were like, yo, we got it. We got the right, you know, we know where we need to be. And then we went on and started filing for those, the permits that took about two and a half, close to three years to get. And then uh, from there, we just lucked out. We got turned down by a couple of distributors and uh, just by happenstance had to, happened to get a call to a friend of ours to complain about getting turned down. And then he called uh, his buddy, which happened to be uh, Tom Montague over at Silver Eagle. And he said that he was they were looking to start doing spirits. And uh, we we and what we were doing, too, like in the before days, we were doing like a Pepsi challenge. You know what I mean? Like kind of taking it. You know, Fine taste test. Yeah, exactly. And then so we did the same thing with Tom and uh, and John Johnson and we won and they picked us up. And that's been it from there. I mean, vodka is sort of. Is mostly flavorless, right? I mean, that's kind of its its 
or or how would how would you describe the flavor of of kind of what you've created? Well, the thing is, is that first of all, vodka definitely does have a flavor. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like it tastes like fire, a lot of it, and uh, and it smells like alcohol. But if you read like Smirnov's book, The King of Vodka, he talks about how it talks about back in the day when they were making it that you could tell like who made this vodka by the nuance and the character of what was going on with it, the grains and all that stuff. So with what we do, mostly you're going to get like some of the sweetness from the corn and that viscosity difference that makes it have a little bit more body to it. And, uh, and that's, that's primarily it. It's going to finish smooth. It's going to definitely not knock your head off in the morning, you know, which is very key. It goes our collection methods of uh, only collecting the hearts of the run. So we're not we're not into like trying to get the largest yield that we can by blending tails and all that stuff. We just collect only the hearts and bottle the hearts, you know. And so basically, you're just going to get something that drinks really clean and easy and you can drink it neat. A lot, most people, I just drink it with water, you know. So that's pretty much what you got. Yeah, I mean, scotch and soda, right? Scotch and soda is kind of the classic, simple cocktail, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Like highway and soda. Perfect. Throw a lime in there. I prefer a lime. lime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Wendell, I mean, you're the one who's sort of responsible for distilling this stuff. Um, how's it going? Like, as you've kind of grown the business and, and are you, how have you sort of managed, uh, you know, it's kind of one thing to make small batches for friends and family. It's another thing to be in specs and total wine and everything else. Yes. When we were making small batches, we had a, a still that matched it um we've obviously had to upsize our still uh in the past couple years and it looks like going forward we'll need to upsize again um and then staying ahead with our production so you as opposed to making batch by batch we just continually make vodka six days a week so we're constantly in production mode and letting it sit there and wait on an order to come in as opposed to waiting on an order to come in and then make a batch yeah, I mean, how's it? I mean, how's it going from a business perspective? Because I mean, you are in, um, I mean, you're in stores all over Houston and and I guess beyond. I think we're doing well, um, considering we've been on the market for what two years now. We've really? doubled year our first year into our yeah year and a half. Uh, we've doubled our first year sales, and looks like we're on pace to double that number again. So we should end up at about I don't know four or five thousand cases this year yeah that sounds like i mean that sounds like a pretty solid growth right and the next year we anticipate doubling that so just want to keep that up upward trajectory yeah and then ben let me let me come back to you on this i mean there's not you know as i understand it there's not a lot of black owned distilleries either in texas or or even in the country so i mean is there um sort of beyond the quality of the product is there kind of an interest in the company just just based on that i mean i'm sure you know depending on the consumer right that uh that that plays into it um there are not a lot of um black owned or operated distilleries in the country like there's about a little over a hundred brands um like if you if you include like wine and everything but then um if you talk about actual like distilling and people that own their brand and make their stuff, yeah, you're, you're getting into like some, like the teens, <laughs> you know, across the whole country. So, yeah, but I, I, I don't know. It's 
hands on the consumer, really the customer, what matters to them. Because um, the biggest thing is, is first of all, the product is trash. It ain't going to help regardless. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, right. Yeah. With that part being done, you know, everything else is just kind of subjective, you know? Well, no, I, I was wondering about this. You guys are involved with the nearest and Jack advancement. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that that's that's a whole nother thing. Yeah. So basically what that program is, is um, well, I guess, you know, it's a partnership with Uncle Nearest and um, Brown Foreman basically to help out minority owned distilleries or really just brands, period. And uh, yeah, man, that they, you know, just a quick just since really I started talking to Fawn about in August, maybe. And then like in September, she, the things that she had done opened us up to uh, being able to have distribution like nationally with the online presence and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and just the, the the guidance and the connections that she's put us on to that initiative has put us on to it has been really big for us. And it's really kind of accelerated some things. Well, like specifically, like what is it? What is the what has that done for you? Specifically, what it's done is, um, like I said, the biggest. Okay, the biggest thing that it did was hooked us up with a company by the name of Park Street, which is basically functioning as our uh, distributor of record, like you know, around the country. So that would enable us to, you know, enter into states a little bit more seamlessly, and uh, and also so. With that initiative, like there's like a lot of onboarding fees and stuff like that that are um, a part of, you know, getting involved with these companies or like, say, Reserve Bar, which is our online, you know, carrier that so people can just buy it anywhere in the country now and have it shipped to them. There's a lot of onboarding fees and stuff like that that they waived, you know, on both sides for the, uh, you know, as of being a part of the initiative to to, you know, provide those kind of opportunities to uh for us, you know, to, to get into the game. And so those two things alone, you know, made a big, big difference in, in what's possible for us, you know, moving forward. So now you're talking about like, so now we're in California and Florida, you know, um, we're in Georgia now, you know what I'm saying? So like all of a sudden, just by basically linking up with them and kind of seeing what's possible and them kind of, you know, giving you that kind of push and like, and support, you know, it's just like, okay, let's go do it, you know. Yeah. And then, Wendell, I mean, how would you kind of like to see Highway grow over the next couple of years? I mean, do you want to just keep making vodka? Do you have other spirits you want to add to the to the product mix? I mean, what are you thinking? Uh, we have a whiskey that we'd like to release probably next year. Uh, we have a, I don't know if Ben mentioned it earlier, but we bought uh, seven acres next door to the distillery, and um, we are renovating that hopefully in the coming year to have a tasting room and then we'll have some offerings there that won't be available to the general public, but we'll have available there at the tasting room uh, as far as some of our limited edition whiskeys. And that of course are distilled with hemp and what else? Um, But as far as additional offerings, I'd like to see us do some alcohol based pops possibly. So that's one thing that we're thinking. Oh yeah. That'd be fun. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in South Texas, right in the summertime, it gets pretty warm and everyone wants a way to cool down, even adults. So, and then Ben, I just, I do want to shift to one other, one other topic, which is Lucille's 1913, the the charity you and Chris started Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of feed people in, in different neighborhoods in Houston. Um, How's that going? 
Oh man, it's going crazy. Um, you know, just doing a lot of good work out there, probably north of 80,000 meals by now. Um, you know, planning to do about a thousand families on, uh, for Christmas, this big Christmas uh, dinner initiative for, you know, people that um, are really in need and stuff like that. So it's a, uh, man, it's just been amazing. And, and it's been amazing. The support that we've been getting is like really just, I mean, you couldn't ask for more, man. I mean, it really is just going amazingly well. And we're just really able to help a lot of people. And it's just, uh, it's just a blessing to be able to be able to do that, you know? And I forgot to mention too, that um, throughout the end of the year as a part of, you know, some of the fundraising that we're doing with Highway is that we're giving a dollar back from every bottle to <clears throat> sold throughout these past two months to kind of go towards that initiative to, uh, you know, to uh, feed these families for Christmas. Yeah. I, I'm, I admit I don't have I don't have all the notes in front of me, but like you're focused on a couple of specific neighborhoods, aren't you? Yeah. So like, no, well, no, not really. Like there are satellite sites, you know, that where we're doing a lot of the meal prep and stuff like that. But it's pretty much getting all around. My brother would be the one that you really want to talk to more so about the exact, you know, houses and stuff like that that we're operating in. Sure. Um let me uh, come back to highway for just a minute. I mean, you know, Wendell was talking about maybe whiskey and maybe, and setting up a tasting room. I mean, how do you feel kind of about how this year has gone? I mean, this is a, it's a difficult year to be growing a business for sure. Uh, well, so man, yeah. Like the thing is about this year is um, it's really been interesting for us because uh, the sales have really gone up as far as, uh, you know, like off premise sales, the liquor stores and stuff. So, it's been really interesting because and we've been fortunate again, man, to be able to keep rocking and rolling and actually growing during this hard time. It's just, uh, we're just thankful for that opportunity and just to be in that space because, um, you know, we're actually, you know, we're just growing, you know, during this time. And so as weird as that is, you know, and um, so, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, everybody, the challenges are definitely there, but fortunately, our challenges are a little bit different that we're experiencing, you know, and that's just how to try to mitigate the growth. Yeah. So, so what has been the biggest challenge as you, as you scale up? Hmm. Trying to really take advantage of the opportunities that are laid before you, you know, so financially, you know, and stuff like that, like, cause all of a sudden now, okay, somebody calls you, Hey, we want to carry your product. Like take for instance, uh, Georgia. Right. So we got onboarded there with another, big Budweiser distributor. And now the challenge is like, okay, now we have to execute that. You know what I'm saying? Like you ask for it, you know, like think like, man, I just want to have, you know, we just want to be everywhere. And you're like, oh yeah, but you have to work those areas too. And that costs time and money, you know, and, uh, and it's, and it's not your home. It's not your home state. You know what I'm saying? So you got to go out and figure out the ebb and flow of how things work. And with spirits, everything is different. So like in Atlanta, for instance, in Georgia, you know, like here we have like, say, total wines and, you know, they're all the same. Right. But they're only you, you can have five or six or 10 total wines up there, but only two of them can carry spirits. So you cannot have more than two liquor licenses per company. So that makes it weird. Right. So you just can't go and score like a big 
total wine to count and and just have like all these stores now now you can only have two of those you know and so just learning all that kind of stuff and figuring out and also realizing too that taking for granted um how huge houston is you know what i mean like you take that for granted when you live here and then you expect everybody to have the same stuff going on you just like realize like oh no this city is like the fourth or third or fourth largest city in the country and the 11th largest economy in the world you know it's like it's a lot of things that to do it's just a lot of work to do right here to get a really good you could build a great business and never even leave this city you know what i mean but um so that's the challenge is just trying learning how to grow and then we don't know what we're doing we're learning this stuff every day you know what i'm saying like so it's cool having people like that initiative to kick some stuff off on, you know, and some ideas and stuff like that and get a little guidance. But by and large, we're just figuring it out as we go, you know. All right. Well, before I let you go, you have to uh, you have to play the lightning round with me. Five easy okay. questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Ben, let me start with you. What is your uh, what is your favorite cook or what is your favorite cocktail? Highway and soda with lemon. <laughs> Wendell, how about you? I was vodka soda, highway soda and lime. There you go. What is your, uh, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Me, Prince. Me, the Jackson Victory Tour. Oh, wait, no, you're right. That was it, the Jackson <laughs> Victory Tour. Yep. In the, in, in the Astrodome in 1984. That's it, yeah. yes. Yeah, I was, yep. I was there. That, that, is, that is my first concert. This is a picture of me with Michael Jackson at that concert. Oh, wow, look at you. Yeah. You're going to have to send that to me so we can, we can throw it into the photos for the, uh, the article. <laughs> yep. Um, Ben, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Oh, dude, that's easy. Water burger with cheese and bacon. Done deal. Wendell, how about you? The Caniac combo with extra sauce, extra cane sauce. Wendell, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Akeem Olajuwon. Ben, how about you? I got to go with Akeem. I was going to say Earl Campbell, but Akeem. All right. And then finally, Ben, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Pepperoni and mushrooms. Wendell, how about you? Black olives and green olives. I know, strange. That is, I, I wasn't going to say anything. I, I yeah, thought it, yeah, but I, I was, was, I was sitting that. here like, for real? <laughs> yeah, I keep it salty. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I've never heard that joint. <laughs> ben, give us the website and the social media and all that for Highway Vodka. Okay, so it's uh, www.highwayvodka.com and at Highway Vodka on everything. All right. Gentlemen, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, thank you, man, for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.